Matthew chapter 9. Let me read you our exchange here. Matthew 9 verse 1. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And when he arose and went home, the crowd saw it, and they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This miracle bridges the gap between the Sermon on the Mount and the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And let me explain what I mean by that. And what we just read here, this miracle has a key word that's repeated in it. And the word is authority. This word is authority. It's, the, it's what the scribes marveled at. Who is this person who thinks he has the authority to forgive sins? It's what Jesus claims so that he has demonstrated that he has that authority. And it's what the crowd is marveling at at the end of verse 8, that, that somebody somewhere has the authority to forgive sins. Now, the word authority is a very key word in the Gospel of Matthew. If you remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most world-changing, life-altering sermon ever preached, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it closes with the crowd astonished because of the authority of Jesus. They said, we've never seen anybody with this kind of authority. They didn't comment on his, you know, his colorful illustrations, although he had them in the sermon. They didn't comment on really even the, the way he delivered it, although it must have been impressive because thousands of people heard it outdoors in a place with no amplification. No, what they were struck with at the end of it is the kind of authority it took to say the things he said in that sermon. Remember, he turned their world upside down. He said, you've heard the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders say this, that, and the other thing about Moses. I'm telling you, they are all wrong. I mean, that's the Sermon on the Mount. They were, they were gobsmacked about it. They didn't know how to comprehend that somebody could get away with saying those kind of things. And then you see the word authority again in Jesus's ministry. The week before he dies, he cleanses out the temple and the chief priests corner him after he does this and they demand to know on whose authority do you do this? And Jesus responds with a riddle to them. He says, I'll tell you if you tell me by what authority John the Baptist did his baptism, which you think that's out of left field. I mean, John's been dead for a while by that point. And they couldn't answer that. And they conspired amongst themselves. They said, if we say that John did his, his ministry by the authority of God, they'll want to know why we didn't believe him. And if they say, if we say he did his authority by, or his ministry by the authority of man, they'll, they'll, they'll be mad at us because they love John. And so they couldn't answer the question. So Jesus says, fine, you don't get to know my own authority. Take that. 
And then, of course, Matthew ends his gospel with probably the most famous verse in his gospel. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Notice how the Gospel of Matthew then hinges together. The Sermon on the Mount on the front of it, where Jesus demonstrates his world-changing, life-altering authority, and his authority at the end of it, where he demonstrates that he has the authority to send his disciples into the world, and he has authority to send us in the world. In fact, in my mind right now is coming Matthew 10. In Matthew 10, if you remember, Jesus sends his disciples into the world and he tells them, I'm giving you authority. In fact, that's what it says in Matthew 10, verse 1. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And so notice how this gospel is fitting together. There's the authority that Jesus has that he demonstrates in his preaching. And then the authority at the end of the gospel, which he even delegates to us, imagine that, (laughs) to go into the world preaching the gospel. But there's a hole in that argument. There's a logical hole there. It's like an if A, then C thing, and we're missing B. If Jesus has this kind of world-changing, life-altering authority, and how does it follow that we then are supposed to go into the world with that message? What's the missing part? Why does Jesus' authority give us something compelling to share with other people? What is so incredible about the authority of Jesus, as exalted and as high as it is, that compels us to be witnesses to our, our neighbors, that compels us to be evangelists, as the Gospel of Matthew is arguing us to be? And that is where this miracle in Matthew 9 fits in. I'm telling you, this is a, a key miracle. This miracle is kind of the joint on which the first half of Matthew works into the second half of Matthew. It's the transition here. And let me explain what I mean by that. All of the miracles in Matthew 8, which we looked at in the spring or whatever that last season was before summer, spring, right? It happens. I remember it clearly. We went through Matthew 8 then. All of those miracles, if you remember, I said every week were designed to show that Jesus had the authority to preach the Sermon on the Mount. That he had the authority to tell you, don't listen to the Pharisees. Don't listen to the Jewish religious leaders. Set them aside. He has the authority to upend them, to uproot that whole system. And all those miracles in Matthew 8 established that. We talked about how they fulfilled the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. The Messiah would come and cause the the lame to walk. The Messiah would come and and heal people. The Messiah would have dominion over the weather and over the storms and over the demons and all of those things. And Jesus did all of that. He even fulfilled the song of the Savior from Isaiah where he takes our sicknesses on himself as he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And these miraculous things happen in Matthew 8 to demonstrate that he is the Savior and he has that authority. But now there's a bit of a change coming. And from Matthew 9 and 10, it's going to be not just about the authority of Jesus to demonstrate he is who he says he is, but it's going to be about particularly the authority of Jesus to do one thing. And that one thing is not make the blind see, not make the lame walk, not bring the dead back to life, although all that's going to happen The one thing that's going to dominate the next few chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, simple, that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. That's going to be the driving force. That's the the hinge on this. And 
if you think about it, it makes sense. If Jesus has all this miraculous authority, but he cannot forgive sins, how does that authority then transfer to us? What does that authority mean to us? Yes, he can walk on water, but that doesn't mean we can follow him. Just ask Peter. (laughs) Yes, he can do these outrageous things. That means maybe we should pray to him and ask him for help and, and plead with him for our sick friends and our loved ones. Yes, but that's not the kind of authority that transfers down to us. No, the message of Matthew is that Jesus has a different category of authority than simply walking on water and healing people and raising the dead. Particularly, he has the authority to forgive sins, which has never been claimed by any other prophet ever. There's scores of verses in the Old Testament that make it clear only God can forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. If you were to, let's say, punch the person next to you. Now, don't know. I have to, sometimes I talk to the high school and junior high kids. I have to make that point clear. (laughs) Don't actually punch the person next to you, but pretend that you did. And the person is angry with you. And then I step and say, whoa, 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 it's okay. You guys are forgiven. Doesn't make a lot of sense because I'm not the one that was punched. (laughs) Were I the one that was punched, then I could say, oh no, I don't want to press charges. I forgive my assailant. But I can't do that on behalf of somebody else. If your house is burglared and the police show up, your neighbor can't intervene and say, it's okay, officer, they don't want to press charges. Who are you? So what does it mean when Jesus says that he has the authority to forgive sins? What he's declaring is that all sin is against him. You understand this with David and Bathsheba, that David had sins against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against his men, his soldiers, by depriving of their leader. He was an adulterer and a murderer and lazy and lustful and lying. I'm in all of those sins. And he's confronted by the prophet. And David says, I have sinned. And Nathan says, I, God forgives you. Yahweh forgives you. And you think, how is that true? Well, it's true because of one verse tucked in that narrative where David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And you understand this, that all sin is against God. All sin is against God. And so what Jesus is doing in the Gospel of Matthew In the Sermon on the Mount, he's telling you that he has authority that the scribes and the Pharisees and religious leaders can't even imagine. And he turns their whole world upside down and tells a nation of religious people, disregard the Jewish leaders, disregard the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, forget all that. They don't know what they're talking about, which itself is an insane amount of authority. And he claims that. And then he proves that he has that. And at the end of the gospel, he says, go into all the world and make disciples, knowing that their sins can be forgiven. baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, knowing that his authority has been given to us to do that. This miracle here is kind of the connection between the two to show you that because he has that world-changing, life-altering authority, he can also tell us that our sins are forgiven. Matthew 8 has shown us that Jesus has the authority to teach God's word because he's from God, that he has authority over demons and the devil, and he does that by demonstrating it, by casting out the demons. He has authority over the physical world. He has authority over leprosy. Remember, he touches the leper and he doesn't catch leprosy. The leper catches holiness. 
his authority over the Old Testament law. And all of this leads to this exchange in Matthew 9, where Jesus gets back in the boat. We don't know how much time took place between the end of chapter 8 and the start of chapter 9. He went over to the other side where he cast the demons out into the pigs. Do you remember the pigs launched off? This is in the, the Gentile region of the Sea of Galilee over there in that, the corner down towards Jordan. He crosses back over to where he spent most of his ministry. Again, we don't know how long he was across the lake, but he, he goes back over, back towards Capernaum. That's his own city, it says at the end of verse 1. This is where he did most of the miracles in chapter 8. This is where he healed Peter's mother-in-law in that house there. This is the headquarters of his ministry. Jesus spent most of his ministry in this house. He's already done miracles in this house. He's back there. Mark fills in so many details that are, are missing here. Mark lets you know that Jesus had been trying to get away from the crowds at this point. That's why I say we don't know the amount of time that transpired here because he goes back over and the crowds are just pressing in on him. They're bringing him the sick and the diseased from all over the place. They're just streaming in. Jesus is trying to teach. So remember, he keeps trying to sneak away so he has enough room to actually teach like he did it on the Sermon on the Mount and the crowds won't let him. And so he finally settles in this pattern of teaching in a house. And you can see why that would be beneficial. Kind of the crowd reaches capacity and you can't get any more people in. Like it's, it's you put a big guy in the door and that's it. <laughs> and so that's what he's settled in at. He's now teaching in the house. He also goes across the street to the synagogue. And if you go to Israel, you can walk this. I mean, it would take you one minute to walk from the house that Jesus has been doing these miracles in over to the synagogue where he's been teaching. They're right next to each other. So that's his pattern from the house to the synagogue and back again. Kind of the crowd is rotating in and out and sick people are brought in and, and it's just how he's settled into his ministry now. Well, in one of those events in verse two, the word, the phrase in the ESV, behold, it's an exclamatory phrase in the Greek. It just means like, check this out. <laughs> Get a load of this. <laughs> this is incredible. Some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And if you know the story, you know that Matthew doesn't focus on the how the some people did it, but Mark does. Do you remember how the some people did it? The house was packed. And so they climbed up onto the roof and they dug a hole in the roof. <laughs> and a lot of these houses were, were two stories and likely this one was. I mean, you know, this dude, Jesus said, prepare the upper room. There's many of these houses have a great room on the top floor with their living quarters, reverse of the United States. Like in the U.S., our you know, our great room kind of thing would be on the ground floor and, you know, bedrooms on the top floor. And the Jewish world, they'd often flip that. And so Jesus, if, they, if it was two stories, would have been on the second story with the roof above him. And these people made it up to the roof. And of course, the roof is thatched with, you know, sticks and then uh, kind of straw over the top of that and mud over the top of that and straw baked down on that. And they would tile it. And sometimes they tile the underside and sometimes the overside, sometimes both, depending on how much money they had. And so the houses in Capernaum, by the way, have been excavated, some of them with tiles in it. So this is likely the case here. The group gets on the roof because there's no room in the house, remember? They get this, this paralytic on the roof, which cannot be easy. And the most dangerous thing I do in my life is blow the leaves off of my roof. And I'm hauling the leaf blower up the ladder and my wife is checking our life insurance policy while I'm doing it. It's a leaf blower. Could you imagine climbing up onto a two-story roof, lugging a paralytic in his mat with a house packed with people? I mean, the whole thing is insane. That's why Matthew begins with behold in verse two. You're not gonna believe this. Anyway, they get the dude on the roof. They chisel a hole in the roof. 
And just imagine, I mean, they, I don't know, they had a stethoscope, but they found where in the room Jesus was teaching and they get right above him and Jesus is teaching. You can hear them on the roof. I mean, there are people on this roof, you could hear it. I'm certain on that house, you could hear people on the roof moving around up there. And then <laughs> you hear the tiles getting pulled off. I don't know if they had power saws, but. <laughs> and they start chiseling a hole in the roof. Not just any kind of hole, a hole big enough to lower a hospital bed down. I imagine Jesus kept teaching too. That's in my own mind. I imagine he kept teaching, just ignoring it. Sand starts falling, straw starts falling, daylight comes in. I bet he kept teaching even then. But then when the bed starts to come down, I bet he stopped at that point. It's like, whoa. <laughs> And they lower the bed down in front of him. And that's where Matthew picks this back up again. When Jesus saw their faith, there is third person plural. It's the, the faith of the friends. And so you really do have to wonder, the Bible doesn't fill in more of the de details, but you really do have to wonder what is going on with these five people. You know, I'm the four friends and the paralytic. I mean, did the paralytic want to go to Jesus? It seems that way because Jesus is gonna see his faith in a second. Uh, did he want Jesus? Did he think that Jesus could help him? Did the friends know that Jesus was healing everybody? Which seems likely, I mean, word would have traveled that illness is being driven out of Palestine at this point. I mean, people are bringing the sick from everywhere over to Jesus. So maybe they brought him and they thought, man, if he can just see Jesus, they get there and the house is packed, too crowded to get in. They lugged this guy all the way out there. They're not gonna give up. I mean. But Jesus looks at them and he sees their faith. <laughs> it's even funny to picture Jesus looking at them because where are they? <laughs> so Jesus looks at them, <laughs> sees their faith, then looks back at the paralytic. And he says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now this is an incredible thing to say. It's incredible for all the reasons I mentioned earlier. Who can forgive sins except God? It's also incredible because it's not what you were expecting to hear. They just lowered the guy through the roof, not because he was a sinner, but because he's a paralytic. So you are expecting Jesus to follow the same script he has followed before. He hugs the leper. He tells the centurion, oh, I can heal your servant from a distance. That's what you're expecting. The, the guy comes running down the hills from the graves and he casts the demons out of him. Jesus is the problem solver, so to speak. That's what you're expecting. Oh, I see your faith. I see you're paralyzed. One plus one. Walk. I forgive you. And you can walk away with your mat. You're expecting it to go that way. But he doesn't go that way. He leaves the script. That's why I'm saying this miracle is so key. It's his transition from all the healing in chapter eight into all the forgiveness of sins is gonna carry you through the rest of the gospel. Because here Jesus flips it. And he says, because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. Now, I think that this man would be acutely aware of his sin. He's living in a world where if you have problems, it's because you have sin. If you're blind, it's because you're a sinner. And maybe you aren't the one who sinned. Maybe it was your parents who sinned. Or if you're childless, it's because the Lord isn't showing you favor, probably because you sinned. If your wife died, well, you must have really sinned. If your kids died, you're a sinner. That's this world's attitude. You have problems because you have sin. 
It's a total works righteousness kind of system. And so this man would have known his whole life ever since he was paralyzed. We don't know if he was born this way. It's a, the word, the, the Greek word there, it implies some kind of illness that has deprived him of his motor skills. So maybe he acquired this disability through his life. We don't know, but he would have been constantly reminded of his sin. People would have looked at him and thought not, oh, that poor guy, he can't walk. They would have looked at him and said, oh, that guy's sin must be awful. That's how he would have lived his life. And so to hear the words of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. While at first it sounds like Jesus is fighting the wrong illness here. He's the doctor that's misdiagnosed the problem. You know that in this guy's heart, that would have been a relief. And Jesus knows his sin. Jesus even personalizes it. Your sins. It's not general. It's not the sins in your life. (laughs) It's not, oh, we've all made mistakes. We've all had mess ups and whatever. All the euphemisms we use for sin. Jesus doesn't use any of those. He doesn't generalize it. He says, no, your personal, your particular sins. They belong to you. They are yours. He is a sinner and they're forgiven. And you can say it this way. Jesus in doing this meets this man's greatest need. And it is worth pausing right here and you asking yourself if you believe that is true. Do you believe that this paralyzed person lowered through the roof, that his greatest needs are for his sins to be forgiven? And you can ask yourself, you can diagnose that this way. You can ask yourself, what if I have somebody who is ill, if I have a a friend or a loved one who is dying of cancer and who's not a believer, what is his greatest need? What do you believe his greatest need is? How do you pray for him? Jesus identifies here this man's greatest need is having his sins forgiven. This doesn't mean that you don't pray for somebody's physical healing. Of, of course you do. And of course, God does heal people with physical ailments. He, he heals people who are sick and dying through the gospel of Matthew. He heals some with faith. He heals some without faith. He heals some that you don't know about their faith. So the New Testament doesn't say in order for your sins or in order for your illness to be healed, you have to have faith in Christ. Jesus heals people that don't have faith in him. But it is worth asking yourself, what do you think the person's greatest need is? And we often tell ourselves, we pray, you have a friend who's dying and we pray, Lord, if you heal them, then they would know your power and then they would trust in you for forgiveness. And don't you pray that way sometimes? But I, I don't know if I've ever seen a prayer answered that way. I'm, not, I'm sure there has been in the world people that have had their cancer miraculously taken away by God, and then they're converted to faith as a result of it. I'm sure this happened, but I've just never encountered it. I've seen way more people come to faith through cancer than come to faith because their cancer was taken from them. I've seen way more people come to faith because of suffering in their life than having their suffering removed. It seems that often suffering and illness is the means that God uses to bring somebody to faith more than miraculously healing them. Now pray for people's healing. You should pray for people's healing. I mean, if you love them, you, you don't want them to suffer and you know a God who does your prayers. And so it is, it is great to pray for people's healing. I would encourage you to do that. 
Weep with those who weep, suffer with those who suffer, take on their burdens on yourself. But at the same time, you can't deceive yourself. You have to remind yourself, what is that person's greatest need? It is not the cancer to leave. Their greatest need is for their sins to be forgiven. And that's what Jesus does here. The scribes then in verse three, the scribes, they're going to speak. And we've seen them before in Matthew's gospel. We meet them at the beginning of Matthew's gospel when the wise men come and want to know where the Savior is born. Herod consults the scribes and they say, oh, in Bethlehem. We see them again in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes, there's no hope for salvation for you. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowd is astonished because Jesus teaches with authority unlike the scribes. But we have not really had an encounter with the scribes yet in Jesus's ministry. This is Jesus's first encounter with the scribes in the Gospel of Matthew. He's rebuked them already in the Sermon on the Mount, but this is where they, it's almost like they meet for the first time. And here is what they say. They say to themselves, this is not an out loud conversation. This is in their hearts. They say, this man is blaspheming. That's what's going on in their thoughts. All the scribes in the room, and the room has several scribes. They probably have the best seats in the house. Typical scribe behavior. And in their heart, they go, this man is blaspheming by forgiving sins. Because they're right. They're right. Only God can forgive sins. So they're, I mean, they're, they're halfway there. But Jesus, and I love this line, knowing their thoughts. Doesn't that make you smile? They say only God can forgive sins. All right, who can read thoughts? Can only God read thoughts? Because <laughs> Jesus is doing it right now. Jesus reads their mail without opening the envelope. <laughs> and he rebukes them. He says, hey, I know what you're thinking. I, I just love it when Jesus answers questions that weren't asked out loud. Rebukes secret thoughts, I love it. And you should take confidence in that. You know, my kids will ask me, how do we know God hears our prayers when we're just, you know, on our, our bunk bed? Geneva wants to know, how can God hear prayers from the bottom bunk? Yeah. God can hear prayers you don't even say out loud. And he does here. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus straight up rebukes them. Why do you think evil in your hearts? What they're thinking, how they're acting is indeed evil. It's evil. And the Lord rebukes them. He rebukes them. Which is it easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? That is a great question. Which is easier to say? You can count out the number of syllables. In English, one is one syllable longer than the other. So vocally, like the stress on your vocal cords would be the same for both of them. If that's what they mean, like which is actually physically easier to say, they're both about the same. I don't think that's what they meant though. Which is easier to say? It's one of those Jesus riddles. You can tell someone, take up your mat and walk. And if you don't have the authority to make them walk, you'll be exposed as a liar immediately, right? The guy can't walk. You could tell someone your sins are forgiven. And if you don't have the authority to forgive sins, it's not going to be evident immediately that you're lying. It'll take the person have to die and stand before God for judgment before they figure out you're a liar. 
So in that sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than to take up your mat and walk because you won't be found out right now. But if you do have the authority, clearly if you do have the authority, it's easier to heal someone from walking problems than it is to forgive their sins because sins are against God. Prophets have healed people before. So it's a very complex question. It seems simple on the surface, which is easier to do, but it is a question loaded with theological implications. It just reminds me at the end of his ministry when he asked the same scribes whose authority did John the Baptist use? They weren't able to answer that question. There's no way they could answer this question. This is way above their pay grade. They're the scribes and chief priests, but they cannot, this is, they have to go to seminary for this question. Jesus tells them, so that you may know that the son of man, and here's this word again, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Well, this outs Jesus as the savior, doesn't it? The scribes are not able to tell somebody they can pick up their mountain walk, but you know what else the scribes can't do? It's staring you right in the face. What else can't the scribes do? They can't forgive sins. What's a person's greatest need? To have their sins forgiven. So this exchange exposes the scribes as raging hypocrites. They, they are the emperor with no clothes. They have all this religious pomp and circumstance and they can't do the most basic thing that somebody needs from God. If your religion can't forgive you of your sins, you're, <laughs> what are you following it for? I mean, that's the problem. Why are people religious? Because they're sinners and they're trying to do something to get their sins forgiven. So all religions have to have something they offer people. You know, do these five pillars and God will show mercy to you. Do the sacraments and if you don't sin in a, a mortal way and you have the sacraments done and you're, you're erasing some of your, your sin and there's purgatory that'll catch you at the end and they'll get rid of the rest of it. I mean, every system comes up with something because the whole point of it is to have your sins forgiven. But when you start asking questions about it, how come fasting forgives sins? Well, it doesn't. How come going on a pilgrimage somewhere forgives you of your sins? It can't. I mean, logically, these systems don't even work. The idea of reincarnation doesn't help you. You think you'll do better next time? That's Nicodemus's problem. How do I start over? Starting over is not your problem, my friends. Start over a thousand times, you'll have a thousand crash landings. You don't need a new start. You need your sins taken away. And Jesus exposes to these scribes, they can't even do that. They have Moses, they have the covenants, they have the promises, the prophets belong to Israel. But without Christ, they cannot forgive sins. Also notice this. What did the man have to do to get his sins forgiven? This just smacks religion right in the face, doesn't it? What did he have to do to get his sins forgiven? Nothing. He had to have faith. This guy literally can't move a muscle. What a picture of how we come to Christ, isn't it? 
Now there are people that look at the healings in Matthew 8 and 9, especially Matthew 9, and say, these are not pictures of the gospel. They're just pictures of the power of Jesus. But I'm telling you, that is a that is just half of the picture. Yes, these miracles show the power of Jesus. He heals the guy who can't speak. He heals the blind men. He brings somebody back to life. He heals this person. Yes, it shows the authority of Jesus, but you're missing it if you don't connect the dots to what this says about how a person has their sins forgiven. The introduction to this whole chapter, and we will repeat this, every Sunday for the rest of Matthew 9. You're going to be tired of hearing it. But every one of these miracles points you back to the way in which the gospel changes your life. Every one of them, without exception. Here, the gospel makes you walk by having no ability to do anything. You cannot serve God because you're spiritually dead. This guy is paralyzed. He cannot do any of the things that religious people would want him to do. He can't bring his sacrifice. He can't do this, that, or the other thing. All he can do there is lay there and exercise faith in Jesus. That's what he brings to the table is desperation. Woe to the person who says that you need to earn your salvation. Woe to the person who says God wants you to do this, that, or the other thing in order to be saved. Nonsense. What God requires for the gospel to change your life is faith. That is it. And when you have faith and you encounter Christ, your sins are forgiven. And then what happens to you? You walk out the door, so to speak. You are on to your life serving Christ. You couldn't serve him one minute ago, but you have an encounter with Jesus Christ through faith. Your sins are forgiven and your rest of your life will be spent walking, spiritually speaking, serving Jesus Christ. Salvation is by faith alone. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. You cannot be baptized to get it. You cannot walk an aisle to get it. You cannot move a muscle to get it. You cannot do good work to get it. The only thing you do for salvation is place your faith in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, your sins are forgiven and you can live your life serving the Lord. This is your greatest need to have your sins forgiven. The man in verse seven rises up and goes home. This room is too crowded for him to get in a second ago, but man, I can guarantee you the rose parted. He walked right through them like a hot knife through butter, right on out that door, leaving his friends on the roof. <laughs> when the crowd saw it, they were, does that say afraid? It's not the word you're expecting to see there. The crowds were afraid. What is going on? And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They, the crowd still doesn't get it. They don't get that this authority has not been given to men yet, although it will be in chapter 10. Through the preaching of the gospel in chapter 10, there will be the authority to forgive sins given to men. But for now, it resides in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Early on, at my time at Emmanuel, there was a teenager who'd been in a car accident who came to the elders for prayer. He was in a wheelchair. He's unable to move his legs anymore. And we prayed for him. And after we prayed for him, he said this. He said, I thank God for my accident. He said, I was leaving the Lord. I was walking away from him. And the Lord used 
this accident to bring me back to him. What an incredible thing to say. For some teenager, he was an athlete, to say, I thank God that I can't use my legs anymore because I was using to walk away from Jesus. <laughs> and he shut that down. What do you think the paralytic would say? I thank God for my paralysis because without it, I wouldn't have met Jesus Christ. It's remarkable that Jesus has the authority to make a man stand up and walk. It's remarkable that he has the authority to forgive sins. But it leads to this question. Does he have the authority to change your life? If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, that's the question you have to wrestle with. He has the power over sin. He has the power over disease. Does he have the power over your own heart? Oh, how hard it is for good people to receive the gospel. People who think they are righteous, who think they are morally superior, who think they don't need a savior, how hard it is for them to believe the gospel. It is easier for a paralyzed dude to get up and walk than it is for a self-righteous person to give their life to Christ. But Jesus has authority over every human heart. The question this morning is, can he heal you of your spiritual paralysis? Are you holding on so tightly to your self-righteousness you don't see yourself in this story because you're in this story. You're either the spiritually paralyzed person, you're either the, the friends that are bringing other people to Jesus, or you're the crowd that is standing in judgment over him. Lord, we're thankful that you are a God who can change a sinner's heart, who can cause the person who is laid out, spiritually speaking, to stand up and walk before you. This is the promise given to us in Ephesians 2 verse 10 that you have appointed for us good deeds to walk in them. We know that apart from the ministry of your Holy Spirit, we are unable to walk. We're unable to serve you. So Lord, we're thankful that you are a God who saves. We see in here a picture of the gospel that we bring nothing to the table except the sin that makes salvation necessary. We're thankful for our friends who faithfully brought us to church, who are parents who faithfully taught us the gospel. We can think in our minds of those like these four friends in this gospel who are faithful to bring their friend to Jesus. May that be us this week. May we be faithful to bring our friends to Christ. Lord, we're grateful that you take people who are spiritually paralyzed, spiritually broken, spiritually dead, you can forgive them of their sins and make them walk. I pray that that would be the testimony of every person in here this morning. That as we go about our week, we would go walking in newness of life, walking with faith in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. And now, a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, emmanuelbible.church. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.